Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what do you think when you hear that? What comes to mind when you hear that? I don't know about you. I'm just going to be very honest. When I hear that, I think of the guys wearing the sandwich boards talking about the end of the world out on the street corner. That's like the first image that pops into my mind. Or um, I used to live in downtown Memphis, and I like to walk down to Bill Street. They had some really great restaurants down there with some good barbecue and ribs and things like that. So I used to like to go down there to, to get something to eat on occasion. Uh, for a lot of people, it's a big touristy place. For me, that was my neighborhood. You know, it was just a few few blocks away from where I was living. And I know on the weekends when you would go down there, of course, there are a lot of people down there. There's a lot of drinking going on, a lot of um, unsavory things that are happening down on Bill Street. Plenty of normal, just touristy, lots of families and that sort of thing. But there's lots of crazy stuff going on, particularly on the weekends. And every now and then there would be this group that would come through. And really, it was one guy and he would have a, a, a pole and like a uh, like a harness and he had this big, tall pole and had this big sign on it that the bottom of the sign was feet above everybody's heads. So, I mean, this was like a, it was like 12 foot tall and it was huge and stood over everybody. You can see it all the way down, uh, you know, three blocks away, the end of Bill Street. And uh, it would have, you know, like John 3.16 on it, or it would have this verse, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the wages of sin is death, or some kind of thing like this. And of course, uh, of course, it started, it was very provocative in a place like that. They started uh, some conversations, more arguments than anything else. Um, I think about the time over at um, MTSU, when I was uh, studying with a young man, we'd not been studying very long. He was very fervent about sort of his return to his Christian faith. And he uh, came up on campus and there was uh, a man standing in a space that was kind of roped off where he was allowed to be. And he had a megaphone and he was uh, simultaneously speaking from scripture and also yelling at people that were walking by and um, commenting on the, the immodesty of s some of the girls, uh, the way they were dressed walking by, commenting about it over a, a megaphone, embarrassing them and just uh, being very rude. and. Um, I remember my young friend got together with some other Christians that he had just met. And rather than argue with the person while some were doing that, rather than, than fight and throw things at the guy, which there were some other people wanting to do that. Um, th this young man got together with his friends and they circled up and they just prayed. And they just prayed that um, the real God would be revealed and that this guy would not push people away from God uh, by what he was doing. And as they were praying, his microphone went out. <laughs> And his microphone quit working. And so the group that had prayed were able to sort of take over the crowd that had gathered and be able to speak to them peacefully and create relationships and talk about Jesus and the good news. So when I when I hear that phrase, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's, it doesn't give me a good feeling, honestly. I, I have all these negative connotations with it. And uh, unless you've grown up in church, I suspect you probably have neg negative uh, feelings about that as well. Even if you have grown up in church, you might kind of feel the same way that I do, at least sort of your initial impression when you first hear it. Well, the problem with that is these are the words of Jesus, and this is what we call the good news. And so we ought to have a great feeling about it. It ought to be great news. It ought to be a refreshing thing to hear. And somehow in our culture today, it's it's become uh, something that we don't want to hear. 
uh, for lots of different reasons. So we're going to look at it tonight and we're going to pretend like we've never heard it before. We're going to sort of peel back all the, the, the garbage that we've laid over it over the years. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying and why might that be good news? But before we get to that, we've got a lot that we've got to get through first. So we're looking at the gospel according to Matthew. Traditionally, it's attributed to the author Matthew, the apostle. There's no way to be certain that he wrote it. There are very early extra biblical sources that attribute uh, the authorship to Matthew. And so traditionally, we have just uh, taken that to mean that this is from Matthew. Remember, uh, most of these books don't have titles. You know, these titles were assigned to them later based on um, the tradition of, of, of who we believe wrote them. Much in the same way, the chapter and verse numbers were not part of the original text or the pericope headings, you know, the little story headings. Those are not part of the original text. So, um, but but we, we traditionally attribute this to Matthew, the apostle. Whoever wrote it definitely was Jewish because that appears to be the atten- intended audience of the gospel according to Matthew is Matthew's fellow contemporary Jews, first century Jews, Jews who were interested in righteousness, Jews who are waiting on the Messiah, the chosen one who was going to come from the line of David. And just like David, he was going to rise up and be a king. Just like David, he's going to slay the Goliath of the, the, the Roman empire that was in charge of them. And they were going to be able to have their own uh, Jewish nation, their own Israel nation there in Jerusalem, once again, with no Roman rule. This is what they were hoping for. And so they're waiting on this Messiah. They're waiting on the promises of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. And so Matthew begins his gospel by introducing us to Jesus, letting us know right away that Jesus is connected to Abraham. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is a descendant of David. He's a son of David. And he's a parallel to Moses in the way that Moses was a prophet and a leader and a savior of his people from an oppressive regime. So in Matthew 1 and 2, we see Jesus being born. We see a, a genealogy of Jesus. We see Jesus being born and everything that goes along with that. And there's tons of parallels to Moses. Letting us, uh, Moses is the most important figure in, uh, in Judaism in many ways because he's, he's the giver of the law. He's the one that God selected to give the law. God spoke to Moses face to face. And right away, Matthew is letting us know Jesus is like Moses, but better, which is a huge claim. If you are a Jew, it's a very tough, tough one to swallow. So um, also what happens in the first couple of chapters of Matthew is we see there are some prophecies. And so Matthew is calling back to scripture. Remember, as he's writing Matthew, there's no New Testament scripture, really. Some of Paul's letters or all of Paul's letters may have been written by the time Matthew writes his gospel. Uh, the gospel of Mark had been written, and it seems clear that Matthew is using the gospel of Mark to, to construct his tale. Uh, a lot of Mark is word for word in Matthew, or perhaps Matthew might expand on some things that Mark is very brief about. But it seems clear that Matthew is using the Gospel of Mark. So, so there was some New Testament that was out there that Matthew, of course, uh, had some access to. But when Matthew's talking about the Scripture, of course, he's talking about the same Scripture that Paul the Apostle would be talking about in his letters, the, uh, the, that Jesus would be talking about when Jesus talks about the Scripture. What is that? Well, it's what we call the Old Testament. It's what Jews call the Hebrew Scriptures. That's their only Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. So if you're a first century Jew, when you say the Scriptures, you're not talking about Paul's letters, then... They don't exist yet in your world. You're talking about the Old Testament. And so Matthew talks about a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament, from the the Judaic and and Israeli prophets, that all pointing to uh, a Messiah. And sometimes when you go back to look at those stories, they don't necessarily seem messianic in their nature. But uh, so what's happening? Why is Matthew drawing from those stories? Well, one thing that he's saying is that all scripture points to Jesus. All this Old Testament all these things that we've been waiting for, all the promises that we're waiting to be fulfilled, all the promises that were given to Abraham, all the promises that were given to David, all the things that were said to Moses, all of these things are actually fulfilled in Jesus, that they're all been pointing to Jesus, which is a huge claim. It's a big, big claim. So that's the first thing is that all of scripture points to Jesus. And as we've gone through Genesis, as we've gone through the rest of the Torah, as we've gone through first and second Samuel, we've shown how all of these stories are constantly pointing us forward to the person of Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing is he, he chooses five prophecies in particular. And we talked uh, a little bit about how the um, uh, 
these are the five prophecies that are there in uh, you know, chapters one and two of Matthew. And so Matthew would say, so there was this, uh, this happened in Jesus's life so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. And we said more than the prophecies even was the number five, how the number five points to Moses because Moses, he's got the five books of Moses, right? And so this number five is sort of reminding you of Moses calling um, Moses to mind. So um, I mentioned this before. We're going to dive into it a little deeper tonight as we move on into the, the meat of Matthew. And that is the five narratives and discourses that appear in Matthew. And I'm just going to leave these on the screen as, as we talk about them. So um, you have sort of an A, B, and C sections to Matthew. A is what we've already looked at, chapters one and two, sort of the origin story, uh, or prologue, if you will. The meat of Matthew, chapters three through, I think, 24, somewhere around there, is these five narratives and discourses. And again, it's it's almost like, uh, a mini Pentateuch. It's like a mini Torah that Matthew has created here. Now, there's no need to try and line up these five things with the five books of Moses. That's not the point. The point is just the number five is calling into mind the idea of Moses. And the the idea with Matthew, because remember, a first century Jew and under Roman rule is waiting for the king. It's waiting for the son of David to come and reclaim the throne and take the throne and be on the throne forever. That's what the Jew is waiting for. And they're thinking about it in pretty literal terms. Right. So if uh, we're here in America and whether it was uh, whether it's the current administration or the last administration, if you're under an administration that you don't like. Right. You're waiting for a new administrator to come in and save you from the administration that you're currently under. Right. That's similar to the way the first century Jews were feeling at the time. We're under this Roman rule and they let us do some things. But they don't let us do other things. We're treated. You know, we're not even citizens. We want our nation. This isn't Roman land. This is our land. God promised this to us, not to them. And we want our king who's going to get them out of here and come and sit on the throne. And so it was somewhat political, but also a little bit theological, but nowhere near what, what we know uh, it turns out to be in Jesus. So these each of these five narratives and discourses have to do with this kingdom. And when I use the word kingdom, I want to make a very important point because we're going to see this over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew. When we hear the word kingdom... One of the first things that we think of is like Magic Kingdom. It's like Disney, Disney World, Cinderella's Castle, right? We think about a place. If we don't think about the castle itself, then we're thinking about the land, right? Okay, oh, the kingdom of Israel, that's the land that's from the Mediterranean over towards, you know, the, the Jordan. And, you know, we start sort of mapping out geographically where is the kingdom. That's not really how the word kingdom is used in Matthew, so when we hear a phrase like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's very important that we understand what that kingdom is to understand whether or not that's good news. So kingdom uh, is a noun. The uh, D-O-M ending just means sort of the, 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 the state of or the being of, right? So um, when you say kingdom, it's, it's like the state of being king, the conditions under which uh, a king exists, Right. So we might say the kingness. So when we talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, rather, we're not talking about a place, but we're talking about the, the mere fact that God is king, the kingness of God, what it means for God to be king. All right. So it's a little more abstract quality. It's very easy to think of a kingdom and think of a walls or a castle or a geographical place. It's more difficult to think about the kingdom as a, as a state of being, as something that's a little more abstract. But that's exactly what the Gospel of Matthew means when it uses the word kingdom. So when it says the kingdom is at hand, what it's saying is the reign of God, God's, God's being king is at hand. What does that mean? At hand. It just means near. It's close. It's coming. It's right here. It's in front of you. At hand. It's in your hand, right? It just means it's very close. You can reach out and touch it. Okay. So it means that it is either uh, uh, coming or it has already arrived. One of the two or both in the case of Jesus, right? So when uh, we hear the kingdom is at hand, what it means is the reign of God is, is close. It's real close. Okay. It's either it's either on its way here or maybe it's already here, right? And so everything in Matthew is about the reign of God. It's about the kingdom. And so I've kind of broke it down into these five titles here, which um, you know you can argue with, make your own. But what we're going to start tonight is the section of the kingdom being announced. 
In each of these five discourses, it's a narrative and a discourse. So we're going to look at the narrative tonight, which is Matthew chapters three and four. And then there's the first discourse announcing the kingdom. And that, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapters five through seven. And so in Matthew chapter five through seven in the Sermon on the Mount, there's lots of rules for living and these kinds of things. But what Jesus is saying is when the reign of God is happening, this is what life looks like. If God is your king, your life will look like this. If you are a subject, if you are a royal subject of the Holy God and of God a king, then your life will look this way. So it's the kingdom announced. And uh, the other four, kingdom authority, kingdom arrival, kingdom action, and the kingdom age. And so you sort of see this progression. What is Matthew doing? Well, he's making an argument to the people that are hearing this for the first time. Remember, most of the people hearing this for the first time are going to hear all of the gospel of Matthew in one sitting. Sounds a little daunting for us, mostly because most of us, uh, maybe we read three chapters or five chapters a day. A lot of us are reading like the couple of verses that's like the verse of the day in our Bible app, maybe not even that, right? So we're not used to sort of reading this much scripture in one sitting, but it's like hearing a sermon. It's like hearing a 40-minute sermon or an hour, hour-long lesson or something like that. Sit down and read Matthew from beginning to end. It's 28 chapters. Probably take you an hour, hour and a half, maybe, maybe not even that long to read all of Matthew. It's a sermon, and it's a sermon specifically geared towards an audience of first century Jews making the argument, the king you're waiting for is this Jesus, and he's not the king you think, but he's a lot, lot better, and what he's got for you is some great news. So we're going to get into the rest of these discourses and narratives a little later, um, but uh, I'm going to take those away for right now, and let's get into the text. So let's go to Matthew chapter 3. We're not going to read all of it tonight just for time's sake, but I do want to show uh, some of the things that are happening here. So right away, Matthew chapter 3, it starts off with a new character. Okay, so we've, we've had the birth of Jesus, we've had the introduction of Jesus, and now we're waiting for magical Jesus things to happen. And yet, the first thing that happens here is this guy named John. And we, we hear about John the Baptist. And we have a scripture here that is in, I believe, all four of the Gospels. And and they're all talking about John the Baptist. This uh, quote here, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And we learn a little bit about John the Baptist and his ministry. And I'll come back and read that in just a second. Why do we start with John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist doesn't really mean anything to us, modern day Christians. Most of us are Gentiles. So there's part of this where, you know, Elijah is supposed to come back before the Messiah. This was a a belief. People that do the Seder, uh, even today, have this time when they're, you know, waiting for Elijah to knock at the door and to come in for, because when Elijah returns, he's going to announce the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for that at this time. So for a, a Jewish person, this is proof that, yeah, this is, this is the Elijah. This is the announcement that you're waiting for. In fact, it's discussed explicitly later in scripture. So there's that. But there's another reason that this is in all of the Gospels, including even the Gospel of John has to deal with John the Baptist. Why is that? Well, it's because John the Baptist, in his time, in the time that these um, Gospels were written, that these sermons were written, John the Baptist was a big personality, right? He was kind of a celebrity, right? So it'd be like if you were writing a story uh, that happens in the year um, you know, 2016 or 2020, and maybe it doesn't even have anything to do with politics. But at some point, you know, Donald Trump is going to be mentioned. He's just such a he's just such a big personality. He, he commands so much attention in so many different arenas and has uh, such an effect on so many things. It'd be impossible almost to write a story that happens from 2016 to 2020 without mentioning his name at least once, right? And especially if you're writing a story uh, about that time for the people of the current time. Because we, we're going to keep waiting to hear about all the political things happening, or uh, we're going to keep waiting to hear about everything that's happening with coronavirus in 2020 or whatever. We, we're, we lived through that time. We're waiting to hear about that story. Well, for first century uh, people, John the Baptist was a big deal. He was quite a celebrity. Uh, he, he did not live like a celebrity. He did not go out and seek attention. But everybody knew who he was, and he was drawing crowds from all over the place. And one reason was because he was baptizing. So here you have this crazy kind of homeless guy out in the middle of nowhere, baptizing people in the Jordan River. And there was a very distinct idea in the first century that the the person who was higher up the spiritual hierarchy got to do the baptizing. 
So uh, if you are um, baptizing someone, then the person who was doing the baptizing was uh, higher up the spiritual ladder than the person being baptized, if that makes sense. And so baptism was typically relegated to uh, the priests and the, and the workers, the people around the temple. And yet here you have this guy wearing cam camel hair and eating locust and honey, and he's out baptizing people uh, by, on his own, starting his own movement, gaining his own followers. And he gained quite a following, such a huge following, in fact, that even to this day in the year 2020, if you go to the land of Palestine, Israel, you will find followers of John the Baptist. You will find people who trace their faith back to John the Baptist. Apparently, people that were baptized by John, but were not uh, rebaptized into uh, Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so they had John's baptism, they had John's teaching, and they hold fast to it, but they never, I guess, learned about Christ along the way, or maybe they heard about it and didn't believe it because they were so into John. They didn't listen to what John said about Jesus. But even to, the, even to this day, it's hard to believe, but even to this day, there are followers of John the Baptist. It's a very small sect, but they're there. And guess what they're doing? They're baptizing, right? Because that's what John did. And so um, they took, they, that, that's how big a deal John the Baptist was that 2,000 years later, they're still followers of John the Baptist. So every gospel being written for the people of the current time that would definitely know about John the Baptist if they start hearing about this Jesus and the Messiah, one of the first questions they're going to have is, well, wait a minute, what about this John the Baptist guy, right? And didn't John the Baptist baptize Jesus? So wouldn't that make John the more important person, right? And didn't John have some teaching and doesn't Jesus use some of his teaching, right? And so it's a very important thing to have to deal with for the people of the first century. So we're always possibly confused when we read here, why, why, why are you making such a big deal out of John the Baptist? But for Jews, particularly Jews of the first century, it is a big deal. And it's got to be dealt with, especially this issue of who's baptizing whom, right? And so that's what we see right here in the story. Let's go back to the text. I do want to read a couple of things that John says. Um, look right here in verse uh, 10. So he sees Pharisees and Sadducees coming to uh, the baptism, and he calls them the brood of vipers, right? Who warns you from the coming wrath? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Uh, we're in verse eight. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. So John's preaching repentance already. Repentance, what does that mean? It means to change your heart and mind, to turn around is what it really means, to turn away from the selfish and harmful things that you've been doing to yourself and others and turn toward God, turn toward love. That's what John the Baptist is saying by repent. And so we've got these teachers of the law that have been using the law. They've been standing on the necks of people. And John says, hey, Got to turn around. Got to quit doing that. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these very stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. So, you know, one um, idea about um, the Jewish people over time is this idea of a remnant that the, there's the, there's the, the tree of, of Israel and that it might get cut down through uh, war or captivity or something like that, but there's always a remnant. And from that remnant, something will grow. And what John the Baptist is telling these Pharisees and Sadducees is, hey, you need to know the ax is at the foot of the tree. It's about to happen again. And look at what he says after that. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is something that you'll see Jesus say, particularly in the gospel of John, this idea that, you know, the branches that don't produce fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. So it's very important to understand what does this idea mean about producing good fruit? There's another reason the story of John the Baptist is here. John the Baptist is not only announcing that Jesus is coming, but he's literally preparing the way for the Lord. He is tilling the soil, if you will, for the for Jesus to, to be planted as a seed, the word of God to be planted as a seed, a parable that we'll hear later on. So uh, he's tilling the soil. He's letting them know if you don't produce fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. What does that mean? Produce fruit. Well, he's saying uh, that they should have acts consistent with repentance, they should produce fruit consistent with repentance. That means fruit in their lives, their behavior, sort of the results of their behavior, right? But it also means producing learners, right? Oh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what were they? They were teachers and they were uh, hinders down of the law and the written word, right? And so it was up to them to make sure that other people learned the things that they knew and to have schools of thought where they taught these things continually. And what John is saying is the people that you're teaching, they need to be taught about repentance. And they need to teach how to teach repentance. 
already John is tilling the soil, talking about baptism, and he's laying a very important foundation, which is the seriousness of the gospel, that if you're not producing fruit, the axe is going to cut you off and throw you into the fire. That's some pretty serious news that we need to hear. We need to embrace the, the great news and enjoy it, but we need to hear the alternative as well. So uh, then uh, John's baptizing. Jesus shows up and it says in verse 14, John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. One note I just want to make here, with very few exceptions, with like one, maybe two exceptions. Every time you see baptism, the baptism of Jesus in Scripture, you will see a Holy Spirit moment. You will see the Holy Spirit paired up with baptism in Christ. So when you go to Acts chapter 2, Acts 2.38, right? Repent, repent, there's that word again, and be baptized. Why? Well, for forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, keep reading. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is right there together. If you go through all the baptisms in Acts, almost every single one of them, there's something about the Holy Spirit paired up in there. And that begins here, begins here with the baptism of Jesus. And notice the word that he uses to fulfill what? To fulfill the law, to fulfill prophecy, um, to fulfill um, everybody's expectations. No, what does he say? To fulfill all righteousness. So this is another word. When we hear the word righteousness, we think, you know, being good or obeying the law, those kinds of things. And it does mean that. But take it in a broader sense. And the way that kingdom can mean a place, but it can also mean something a little more amorphous and blobby, a little higher, the state of being king. I want you to think of the word righteousness in the same way. Yes, it can mean adhering to a law. But how about this idea of things finding the right place? Things uh, finally being made right, things being justified in the world, things being made new. Isn't this what Jesus is in the business of? In Revelation, he says, I make all things new, right? And he begins here with the introduction of the Holy Spirit into uh, the life of the earth. Holy Spirit, of course, is mentioned many times throughout the Old Testament, but uh, here it's coming paired in baptism in a very personal way that we will see uh, beginning here, definitely in the book of Acts. We'll see that go through. And it's confirmed when this sort of miraculous event, this voice from heaven, the uh, Father God, the Lord speaking, this is my son. There's no question who Jesus is. He's the son of God. God himself declares it, right? And John the Baptist declares it. You should be baptizing me. John the Baptist, who is a big deal, says you're an even bigger deal. I'm not even worthy to tie your sandals, he says in other places. And Jesus says, but this is the way it's going to fulfill righteousness. This is the way we're going to bring about um, the way things ought to be. And so um, John obeys Jesus in that moment. So once we have talked about John the Baptist, given him his right place in history, taken some teaching from him, seeing that he is merely preparing the way for Jesus, then we can move on in scripture. Once Jesus has been baptized, now his ministry begins. So it's another very important thing to note that Jesus's official ministry on earth doesn't begin until the baptism. Now in Matthew chapter four, he goes into the wilderness. And so uh, I'm just gonna read the very first part of this here. Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then we have two more uh, temptations here, which I'll let you look at when you have uh, time to read the scripture for yourself. I don't want to say a whole lot of, uh, about this because I want to focus on some things a little later in this chapter before we finish tonight. But I do want to say this. Um, I've never been tempted to turn stone into bread mainly because I can't do that, right? I don't, I don't, at least I don't think I can. I don't know how to do that. I'm unaware if I have the power to do that. I'm pretty sure that I don't. 
So that's never been a temptation for me because it's not even something that I can do, right? Um, the things that I am tempted at are all twisted distortions of things that I am able to do, right? I am able to, to love very deeply. So that can easily be twisted into lust, right? I'm able to, to lead people. That's something that I, I have a skill for, right? But that can easily be twisted into to pride and control or anger, right? Um, I, uh, I see value in everything. That can easily be twisted into greed, right? So the things that we are capable of, this is where we find our temptation. The things that Jesus is tempted of is, is not things that any of us could be tempted of because we, we don't have the abilities that he has. But we see that Jesus is tempted at, at his strong, when he's not tempted at his weaknesses, he's tempted at his strengths. <laughs> and I think it's the same with us. We, we talk about being weak, but that's different than talking about our weaknesses, right? Um, our, our, our strong desires, that's where we're tempted. And the things where there's some strength, the things that we're really good at, that's where we suddenly find lots of, lots of temptation. Um, you know, if we're, if we're very strong at, at being charming and uh, likable to people, it's very tempting to misuse that and manipulate people, things like this, right? So, um, uh, so, so Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted uh, by uh, the, the, the tempter, uh, we call Satan, the devil. And he tempts him at his strong points. And Jesus responds with scripture. And what scripture does he respond with? In each case, he responds with pieces of Deuteronomy, pieces of the law. So once again, we're comparing him to Moses. By the way, he's wandering in the desert. Did you notice that? He's wandering in the wilderness. We did a whole series called Wandering from the book Numbers, which its original title in Hebrew is In the Wilderness, because that's the first words of the book of Numbers, right? So here's Jesus, and he's out there for how long? 40 days and 40 nights, right? That's a call back to the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. Now, did Jesus actually fast for 40 days and 40 nights, or does 40 days and 40 nights mean a long time? I don't know. I don't think it really matters. I mean, the, the, the idea here is that it was a long time. But that, that, that phrase, 40 days and 40 nights, which, which can mean 40 literal days and nights, and it can also just mean a long time. But it's calling up these ideas of, of Noah, right? And, and it raining for 40 days and 40 nights. And we, we saw back in the Light and the Darkness series, Noah in the boat with his family. As soon as they get off the boat, what happens? Noah starts killing things. Noah learns how to um, make wine and gets drunk. And this abomination happens with his son, Ham. Not a lot of good things happen after that. Abraham was not able to maintain his faithfulness. This calls back to mind the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness by the uh, Israelites under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. How did they do? Not good. That's why they were wandering for 40 years. They all had to die in the wilderness because they were not faithful. And when they were there, what were they complaining about? Well, they were complaining about food. They were complaining about um, being a nation. They were complaining about who's going to protect them. They were complaining about water, all these things. Many of the things that you see Jesus being tempted with here, you know, very similar to some of the trials that they experienced wandering in the wilderness. They didn't do very well with them, but Jesus sails through it here with flying colors. So what you see here is a ton of old Testament scripture, Hebrew scripture stories being alluded to in this temptation time. And each time Jesus passes the test, he's even being tested like Abraham, who had to take his son up to a mountain and um, uh, offer him up. Jesus is constantly fully obedient and he uses scripture. He uses the Torah, he uses the law, Deuteronomy, as his defensive weapon against the tempter. So I want you to see what precedes this, because what we think is Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted. In this particular uh, gospel, what it says is, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him. So how long did the tempting go, go on after the 40 days and 40 nights? Was it all on that 40th day? Was it on the 41st day? Was it for another two, three months? Did he stay out there for another 40 days? Well, it's impossible to know from the text, right? But one thing I want to show you 
is that leading up to the temptation, leading up to the confrontation with temptation, Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days and nights. Uh, it says he fasted for 40 days and nights, but the the reason you fast is particularly in this time. This wasn't for his diet, right? This was a spiritual fast. Fasting and praying go together. It's 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 an understood part of fasting. So uh, I mentioned um, uh, to those who are watching on the Facebook Live, this idea that our culture, one of our biggest weaknesses right now is we don't have time for stillness. We don't have time for quiet. We don't have time to be vulnerable. And here, before his ministry begins, before he says a single word to another person as part of his ministry, what does Jesus do? He finds a place to be quiet, to be still, and to be vulnerable. And he prays, and he deprives himself of the things of the world so that he can have the closest connection with the things not of this world. So this is why fasting is very important. When you look at scripture on fasting, you will not see um, it talking about, you know, for those who like to fast or something like that, it's, it's for everyone. It's assumed as part of your spiritual life, you're going to fast. It's just assumed. And yet so many of us in modern day Christianity, we just don't do it. Fasting is very important. And if maybe you have a medical condition or something where you can't fast from food, fasting from food is, is the way to go. It's something that everybody can do all throughout time. But if you can't do that, the idea is to deprive yourself of something that appeals to your selfish nature. So that's a lot of people take social media fasts. Again, it's that, it's that way of being quiet and being still, putting the phone down, being alone with your thoughts. You know, the last couple of weeks, I've been doing a lot of things on my computer. I've been doing a lot of things online. I've been trying to catch up on some, some TV and movies and stuff that I haven't seen. And that's my business. I need to kind of keep up with what's out there and what the stories that are being told and where our culture is going, these kind of things. I'm trying to watch the news, which is just depressing most of the time and makes me angry for different reasons. And the other day, I just put it down. I didn't put any music on or anything. I just sat in a chair. And I just thought, I did some praying and I did some thinking and I just sat in a chair and literally did nothing. And the only real distraction that I had was when Matilda would come up and put her head in my lap, demanding for me to pet her. And so I would do that. But it was just the most refreshing, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, the whole week, just sit in a chair and do nothing. And um, we feel like we've been doing a lot of nothing for the last couple of months. Many of us have been stuck at home and not being able to go out to a lot of our favorite places, not being able to go see a lot of the people that we like. But I also know, at least what I've been doing, I've been filling a lot of that silence with, with television, with games on my phone, or maybe just being asleep, eating, gained a good 10 pounds during the last couple of months, right? Um, that's not the same. That's not the same as purposefully... Um, you know, mom likes to to go sit on the front porch. She likes to go sit on the front porch and swing and experience just the, the nature and the cool breeze and the traffic going by and the families walking by and the birds uh, in the bird bath and the squirrels running up and down the tree and uh, the flowers, those kinds of things. And uh, that's great. I think we all need to have at least a little bit of time every day where we do that. But fasting as a spiritual discipline is really important. And so if you haven't been fasting, you see how important it is. Jesus doesn't begin his ministry until he spends time being still, being quiet, and being vulnerable. When that vulnerability occurs, yeah, temptation shows up, but um, he's so at one with scripture that he's able to defend and continue to obey the spirit, continue to obey the word of God by... Um, uh, just returning temptation with scripture. So that's the second point that I want to make from this is not just the fasting, but also the scripture. Now, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh and has all knowledge, but we don't know what limitations, um, you know, God put on himself to be Jesus. I mean, he appears to be limited to a single place at a single time, right? So he's put some kind of limitations on him. Um, when he was born back in chapter one, did he know how to talk immediately? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem so. There's no stories about that anyway, not in the scriptures that we have. So it seems like he put some kind of limitations on himself. So um, maybe he just 
automatically knows all of scripture because he's God. But uh, here, Jesus is an adult in the story. Jesus is, is an adult man. And maybe he's studied scripture and learned it all. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that worked. It's a perplexing question. Maybe one day we'll have the answer to. But we see in the Gospel of Luke that uh, as Jesus grows, he, he grows in, in stature and in, and in knowledge and wisdom, you know, and uh, he didn't learn it through trial and error like we did because he uh, spiritually did not make errors. But we uh, see that he did grow in knowledge. So that sort of indicates that he didn't have knowledge at one point and then had it after that. So this seems to be a limitation that God put on himself. So what I'm saying is don't write off Jesus being able to quote the scripture word for word. Don't write it off as God knowing everything. I've got uh, a friend at church who uh, decided one of the best ways for him to really get close to God was to memorize scripture, memorize the entire books of the Bible. Not just a scripture here and there or the, the five scriptures for the plan of salvation. No, he memorized entire books of the Bible and can repeat them back to you and knows them by heart and uh, doesn't just know them to be able to recite them, but really knows them to be able to live them. And when temptation comes at him, you know what pops into his mind? These word for word uh, memorizations of scripture. I've memorized some scripture in the past. I started working on the book of James at one point. Uh, didn't get very far into it, but I got through the first chapter, maybe a little more. And that was a real blessing in my life. But one thing that I, I have memorized a lot of is songs. We have a lot of songs at church that were taken directly from scripture. Um, Psalm 95, uh, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, etc. Um, the the group acapella that sells you know album CDs, whatever these kids are listening to these days. And... Uh, there's songs from there. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You know why I know that verse? Because that's the lyrics to the song that I really love, right? Uh, one of my favorite songs of all time is acapella's version of Psalm 19. They are more precious than gold. It's such a great song. Kodak used it for a commercial at, uh, in the 90s when the album came out. And um, so uh, that's the way I know scripture. And sometimes when I'm tempted, you know what pops in my head? A line from one of these songs. One line from one of these beautiful songs pops in my head. And how can you deny the goodness of the word of God? So um, for time's sake, we're going to move on from the period of the temptation. But I just want to recap. You're only going to be tempted in the places where you're strong. You're only, you're only going to be tempted where it matters. You're only going to be tempted if the things Satan wants to break. Second, uh, don't seek out temptation, but you should seek out being still being quiet and being vulnerable before, vulnerable before the Lord. The Lord allowed Jesus to be tempted, right? God allowed Jesus to be tempted in this time. The tempter came and did it. God didn't do the tempting, but it wouldn't have happened if God didn't allow it. And sometimes we need to make ourselves vulnerable, not for temptation, but for maybe the things that God wants to tell us that are really difficult for us to hear. And the only way we're going to truly know what God's trying to say to us is number three, if we memorize scripture, if we really know scripture. So, uh, know that you'll be tempted at your strengths, spend time fasting, being still quiet and vulnerable and memorize scripture. And that leads us to the beginning of Jesus's ministry. I'm not going to spend a, as much time on this as I ought to only because I've talked a lot about this particular passage in previous lessons. So if you want to know more about the section that we're going to look at here in the last couple of minutes tonight, please go back and look at what is discipleship, because I talk about this section in a big way uh, in, in that lesson. So um, we're now in Matthew uh, chapter four still, but we're in verse 12. So John the Baptist has been arrested and Jesus withdraws up to Galilee. And he, he had been living in Nazareth, but remember he was baptized uh, in the Jordan River uh, where John was doing the baptizing. Oh, by the way, once again, the fact that he's baptized in the Jordan River is another callback to Old Testament scripture because the Israelites crossed the Jordan to come into the promised land, right? And there's a there's another crossing of the Jordan later when um, uh, Joshua and them do that. And uh, now you have Jesus doing it as well, right? And so you've got this crossing of the Jordan and supposedly where Jesus is baptized is where that crossing occurred. Who knows for sure where that is, but tradition has it that there's a specific point and there's very little argument on which point it is. And there's several churches built up around in that area. I've been to that place. I've been in the water there and I got to film a baptism there and it was very sweet. 
One of the sweetest moments of the baptism was when the young man came up out of the water. We began singing uh, a song. I believe it was Blessed Assurance. We began singing uh, a song that we all knew as a church, a group there from North Boulevard here in Murfreesboro. And as we were singing, the group across from us, the group on the other side, they were from Southeast Asia or South America or both. There was a couple of different groups over there. They began singing that song with us, but in their language. And we all sang together and we all uh, just beamed with joy at this young man that had just given his life to Christ. And I can't help but think that uh, that's what heaven's going to be like. Not an eternal church service, but beaming with joy um, and singing together and just uh, having a blast, loving each other and being together. So we're in, we, John the Baptist has um, been arrested. Jesus goes up to Galilee. He's from Nazareth. So he goes um, not back to Nazareth, his hometown, but he goes to Capernaum, uh, which just means the village of Nahum. So that's Nahum, like the prophet in the Old Testament. So uh, Kephar means village and Nahum means uh, Nahum from the Old Testament. And so Kephar Nahum is the name of this town. In fact, if you go and look at the signs Today, in English, it'll say Capernaum or it'll say Capernaum because that's the way the uh, it's the way it sounded to the Gentile ears. Uh, the the um, the f sound for a p, uh, Capernaum. So he goes to Capernaum and stays there. And we'll talk maybe more about why that is. Maybe see some pictures from Capernaum next time. And we see once again, it's to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah this is only in the Gospel of Matthew, but I love it. Uh, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Man, that takes us right back to Genesis 1-1, when God began creating and everything was dark and void and formless, God's spirit hovered over the water and said, let there be light. And there was light and it was good. God separates the light from the darkness. This right here takes us right back to the beginning of Genesis, right back to our Genesis series. Once again, all scripture always pointing to Jesus. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, you can change your heart. You can change your life. You can turn around from the life that is killing you and killing the people around you. Because the only reason you can do that is because the reign of God, God's goodness coming to reign over all things is really close. Jesus, of course, is saying this because he has arrived. People wouldn't know that or understand that for a while, but Jesus knew what he was saying. Change your heart and life because the reign of God is right here. That's great news. So then he meets his first disciples in, in 18. He sees uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They were fishing. And Jesus in 419 says the first words to his disciples, which are, follow me and I will make you fish for people. So we see this that I've uh, talked about before. This idea from Matthew 419, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. So Jesus is telling his disciples, so the first words of the gospel, the first words of the good news are change your heart and life because the reign of God is right here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's great news. Now he's going to assemble a team and he picks first Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, they're fishermen. And he says, hey, you follow me and I'll change you into something. What am I going to change you into? I'm going to change you into people who fish for people instead of for fish. So there's three parts. Follow me. I will make you fishers of people. What Jesus is saying is you go with me, you do what I do, you hear what I teach, you see what I see, you watch me heal, see all the signs, you learn to do the things that I do, you learn to repeat the things that I say, you learn to uh, do the things that I give you the power to do, such as uh, healings and prophesying, these kinds of things. When you do that, there's going to be a change that takes place. There's going to be a transformation. I will make you. I will turn you into something. Well, what is that? I will turn you into fishers of people. I will turn you into someone who goes out and brings people in like I'm doing and does the same thing all over again with them. This is the beginning of discipleship. Uh, again, to learn more about that, go to the What is Discipleship lesson and listen to all four of those 
for some in-depth uh, thoughts about that. Let's go back to the text. So Jesus began to preach all over Galilee. So we see that uh, Peter, Andrew, and James and John leave and follow Jesus immediately. And uh, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed from the Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So people are coming from everywhere. Why? Why are they coming from everywhere? They're coming from everywhere, not for repentance, not for teaching. They're coming because he's healing. And this is one thing that I want to point out. When Jesus does a sign, when Jesus does healing or raising somebody from the dead or something like that, it's always to show who he is. It's always doing something in the physical world to show that he has authority over the spiritual world. So he does something in the physical world to show that he has authority over the spiritual world. When he comes and says, I have authority over the spiritual world, reign of God is here, repent, that might not catch anybody's attention. But when healing happens, you see the word goes out. And notice people don't bring people who need to repent. They bring people who need to be healed. And so by Jesus doing these healings, it shows to a wide audience from all over the uh, Jewish world at the time, right? From all over the place. Jesus has authority and power. Could this be the chosen one? Could this be the Messiah. This is the narrative that begins the first discourse. The first discourse, of course, being the Sermon on the Mount, which begins when we turn the page. But what I want you to walk away with is this. You have a ministry that God wants you to do in the world, and you need to prepare for it the way Jesus did. You need to spend time in fasting and prayer. You need to spend time in memorizing the word. You need to assemble a team of people that are going to encourage you and help you, people who are going to teach you and people who you can teach. You need to be in a discipleship group. You need to be discipling each other. You need to be discipling somebody else, and you need somebody discipling you. You need somebody lifting you up, and you need to pull somebody else up along with you. Once you have prepared yourself in that way, you'll be ready to go out into the world. Why? To to face the world and, and follow your dreams, well, that might be nice, but that's not why. You're going to go out into the world to share the good news about Jesus. Every great thing you do, every fun thing you do, every likable thing that you do, every sign that you produce in your life should always point to one thing. The reign of God is really close. So ask yourself, until we meet again on Monday, ask yourself this question. What am I doing in my life that is encouraging other people to change their lives so that God can reign in their heart also? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.